Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome. We are glad you're here. And those of you who thought you were going to come to church early came late today, right? You didn't do what you were supposed to. I told you last week. We're glad you're here. My name is Steve White. We're glad you're here to worship. And before we do anything else, I want to introduce you to Ed and Lori Butler. They've been a part of our, our family here uh, for about the past five years. They live in Danville. They're both retired. Lori is retired from Eli Lilly, and uh, they both served on our hospitality team. And we have called, uh, invited Lori to join our staff, and she's now going to be the point person all of, uh, over all our hospitality ministry, our engagement ministry, events that we do. Uh, as well as uh, work with Kyle Nelson, our Minister of Discipleship, to uh, oversee kind of the disciple pathway that we are all on. We want all of, all of us to be on together. So please welcome Lori to our staff today, please. Okay. Thank you all. We are happy to have her join us, and we're happy that you're here today to uh, worship the Lord together. We want his grace to cover all the earth over and over again. And uh, we are thankful for a great God. The text we're looking at today uh, is a a grand one. The the text from which Luke preached last week at Romans 3 certainly stirred our hearts. And the illustration from uh, Hosea's life did as well. If the Bible were a topographical map, last week's text would have been one of the peaks on that map. And today's text would be the same. It is a grand one that we're going to scale today. And I confess to you already, I am not equipped, I'm not qualified, gifted to enamorate, uh, elaborate on it uh, in, in the way it's deserving. But together, I hope we'll all be prompted to go deeper in it and, and meditate and camp out here and, and let it fill us and change us. Here's the text in Philippians chapter 2, and I hope you'll open either a hard copy that you have or look on your device and take notes and underline and circle things because it's such a key text for all of us. So here it is, chapter 2, verse 5. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I like the, the uh, translation says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we have already announced your glory and your goodness in our music. In this prayer... We are lifting you up. 
And we want to do the same as we, as we investigate this text and as we invite it to penetrate us. And I trust we will do that, Father, so that we can be more like Jesus. So I trust that you find us pliable and moldable and teachable today, that your name may be praised. In Christ we pray, amen. And so this text really is a familiar one. It's a challenging one. And it's rather overwhelming as well to get our, our heads around it. And it's mysteriously paradoxical because it thrills us and yet it mesmerizes us. We are wooed yet repelled. We are lifted higher and we are brought low. We are, we, 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 soar with it, and yet we find ourselves prostrate before the author of our faith, the author of our salvation. Oddly, this place of execution, as horrendous as it is, is also to us who are in Christ Jesus a cross of love. And here's why. It's a cross of love, first of all, because of who died there. We live in a time of talk shows that, that, that scratches our voyeuristic itch we like to hear the inside scoop of celebrities' lives and where they live and go in their houses and wonder what they think about things as if that's all that impressive. It tickles our fancy. The cross is the ultimate revelation because we have a, a, a full picture of the person of God himself, of who it is and what happened there. There's a certain salaciousness to talk shows. There's a novelty to it. But this passage... This passage electrifies our minds. It melts our hearts. And if we live here for a while, it changes our lives as well. Because first, it was Jesus, who is God, who died here. And no passage more, more powerfully, more dramatically and intensely testifies to the person that he is. Verse 6 says, being in very nature God. This word for nature is morphe. It's a good word to use here. Former texts you may have read uh, said, use the word form, which is not a good word because there's a different Greek word for that, schema, which means the outward appearance or a physical form. Paul uses morphe, which has to do with the essence of a thing, the, the substance of something, uh, the nature of a being. And so that's why this is a good word. It speaks to the, the fact that this one on the cross, the centerpiece of the cross, is deity. He's the substance of God, who being in very nature God, it says, did not consider equality with God something, uh, what I read, to be used for his own advantage. For another translation, uh, he didn't use his position to grasp equality with God. He didn't keep it. He didn't, he didn't hold on to it, but he, in fact, let go. He's, just, he's not just like God, but he's as much God as God. And he left that place where only God resides in his authority, even though by his spirit he resides with us as well. We know that. But in his position, he let go of that to come live among us. This is the brilliance of the cross. Now, critics, critics have said 
You know, those who don't want to believe Jesus is who he says he is will take and say, you know, because there were people who were fascinated by him, they just embellished the stories about his life in the first century, and they ended up deifying him and making him out to be a god. Now, that's just not true. Think about it. The Apostle Paul writes his letters between, uh, within 25 years of, of the resurrection of Jesus. And here, most scholars will believe, believe that this particular passage is a hymn of the early church. So these early Jews are singing this hymn as a centerpiece of their faith. These would be contemporaries of Jesus, or they would have parents who saw Jesus alive. They saw the risen Christ. And I said either in an equip you session or in a sermon. I can't remember which. I'm old. I can't remember when I said it, who I said it to. But... I said to us that the Romans and Greeks had no problem in their theology, their false theology, thinking their gods could become flesh, human form. They believed that. For the Jews, that's a stretch. Jews, Jews would never believe that Yahweh would become flesh. That was a ludicrous thought. And the very fact that the early church is seen as him which demonstrate that Jesus knew he was God in the flesh and they know he's God in the flesh is a testimony to the reliability of Scripture, just the testimony of these who saw Jesus alive. You can want to keep growing in that. This was Jesus who was God. It was also Jesus who is the God-man. He's not just divine, he's also human. The text says, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. It doesn't say, having been God, he instead became human. That's false theology. It says, being God, he also became human. That's what it's saying. He, he didn't stop being God to become man for 33 years. He was all God, all man at one time. Now, I realize that people have difficulty with that, but that's why these texts and others' texts support the reliability of Scripture and the testimony there is in Christ. That's why John the Apostle writes the gospel that he does with these seven signs. He, he watched the miracles of Jesus. And he says, I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the whole Scripture testimony is about this very fact. And by faith... We believe the scripture based on the soundness, the reliability, the eyewitness testimonies, the preservation of this through the centuries. That's what makes it still the top-selling book in the world because no one has been able to somehow destroy its testimony. It's without question. Now let's, let's take this to a deeper level because of, because of who died here. This is a cross of love because of its humiliation. And that word I'm using is usually we think of humiliation as somebody being ridiculed, and although Jesus was, the humiliation I'm talking about is the process of him humbling himself. And that's what Jesus did. He took on a, a trajectory that was downward in movement, completely contrary to us. We're all about making ourselves better, about a higher standard of living, making more money, making a name for ourselves, getting the things that we love to do, go the places we want to go. It's all about having more and more resources, do and experience everything we want to. Jesus, it was the exact opposite trajectory, went the other direction. That's so foreign to us. And without being redeemed, 
That trajectory takes us to pride and arrogance and ego and condescension toward other people and that sort of thing. This is not Jesus at all, not this cross of love where he demonstrated such humility, starting with the fact that he released his grip on his heavenly position. How unlike us. I'm a grabber. Are you? We go back to the book of Genesis, and, rem- and some of you will recall, and some of you, it's a new story, but Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He becomes the father of many nations. He has these grandkids born to his son and, and daughter-in-law, Jake, uh, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. The twins' names were Jacob and Esau. And for those of you familiar with the story, when Jacob and Esau are born, Esau is born first, Jacob follows, and he's holding the heel of his twin brother. So he's named the supplanter or the deceiver. We might also call him the grabber, the grasper, grabbing onto the heel. And so his life shows that. He's a deceiver. He's a a grasper. He wants the older brother Esau's inheritance, which is double what he's to get. And so he cheats his way to get it. That's the story of his life until God wrestles with him and then blesses him His life is changed utterly, and he becomes the father of all the tribes of Israel and uh, the Jewish nation, so forth. So that's us. That's your story and mine. We are grabbers by nature. That's our sin nature. And so, for instance, you may say, well, how do we claim equality with God? How do we we grasp on? The text says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But that's what we do. You see, when we choose to live in some kind of, or have some kind of sexual relationship with somebody outside covenant marriage, we are grasping equality with God. When we choose to cheat on our taxes or cheat in business, take something that isn't ours, we are, we are grasping equality with God. When we have an unforgiving spirit in us and we refuse to forgive because we like licking our chops too much about it and grieving about it, we are grasping equality with God. When we live with loose lips and gossip and undercutting people and, and, and being cruel toward people, we, we are grasping equality. Well, how, how, how is that grasping equality? Because we're saying, not your will, but mine be done. We are putting our desire ahead of God, and that's grasping for equality with God. Got to let go, friends. Christ has redeemed us. He's called us to a resurrected life. And that's why, because we have found life in him, we, we, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we're moving toward. And so we do need to get a grip But we need to get a grip on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the only one who can redeem us and unchain us and free us and save us and give us life and a future. Now, Jesus, secondly, also emptied himself of his heavenly rights. That was part of his downward trajectory. He emptied himself of his heavenly rights. He made himself nothing, being in very nature God, being in very nature God. Now, some translations say, although he was God. But some commentators also suggest a fitting translation is because he was God. Now, can I challenge you to get your head around that and sit on that for a while? 
You know, we don't think of God being a humble God. That's not one of the first words that we think about in describing him. But it must be because one of the values in Scripture, one of the things Jesus demonstrates is humility. He is the fullness of God. And therefore, we grow to be like God when we exhibit the same humility. You think of God being humble? How can that be? Because he was God. What it's, what it's suggesting is, in eternity past, in his divine foreknowledge, he knew the misery we would be in because of our rebellion. And he didn't have to sit down at his desk and think, hmm, I wonder what I should do about it. I guess I could go do something. I don't know if I want to do something about it. Maybe, well, maybe. That's not God. The, the best I can think about it is, I put it, is here's a parent, and the, you, you've taken your kids out on the lake on a fishing boat, and you haven't been very wise. They don't have life jackets on, and one falls in, and you don't think, hmm, should I leave these two to go get that one? Oh, I don't know if I should be doing that. You know? I mean, there, there's a lot. Ooh, I'm not that great a swimmer. What if it's deeper here than I think it is? A parent doesn't do that. It's the nature of a parent to rescue, to protect, to do something dramatic, whatever is necessary to save, to guard, to love this child. That's why crimes against children like abuse and trafficking and neglect are such heinous crimes to us because they are completely contrary to what parenting is. Why? It's the nature of God to look at his creation because he's God. This is what he did. What a magnificent God he is. We're such a rights culture, aren't we? We're such a rights culture. Everybody's always touting their rights. I hope we are learning as God's people to continually lay them down. Jesus never lived by, I have a right. Of course he had a right. Nobody had more rights than he did, but he never lived by his rights. He laid himself down. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the call on our lives as well on his behalf. You see why? You see why our central purpose is to love all people to new life in Christ? It's not something we do, it's something we are. That's what we have to get to as a church. And we're not there yet. Because we're always still thinking about, oh, I don't know if I should talk to him or not. I don't know if I should be around them or not. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. What if we, that's how we, when we do that, we are unlike God. God looks and he says, I got to do something. And so that's what we want to move to in our vision. Not just something we do, but something we are. Love people to Jesus Christ well. You know, uh, by the way, right before this paragraph we've read today, or this hymn we've read, it says, consider others more important than yourselves. That is so difficult to do, isn't it? I mean, I could tell myself, but as soon as I get around you, I don't want to. <laughs> Aren't you like that? Yeah, it's hard to consider other people more important than ourselves. But that's why this model is given here to see. Somebody said to Churchill once, it must thrill you. Whenever you speak, the halls and the auditoriums are packed with people to overflowing. And Churchill responded, well, yeah, it does thrill me. But, you know, then I have to remind myself that I, if they were hanging me today, the crowds would be twice as big. 
And suddenly, you know, we remember our humanness again and how weak we are and our human nature is to think more highly than we, than we ought to think. Luke and I, in our prayer time this morning, we were just talking about that, how easy it is to, to cover up lack of humility, how easy it is to let pride come in and take hold of us. Jesus was the antithesis of that. And then next, he became a person with flesh and feelings. It says he took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. This is all about the incarnation, that the preexistent one became flesh, starting as just a fertilized egg in the womb of Mary, and then became a mature adult, crucified at 33 years of age. You know, so our, it's so different from our existence. We are here, and one of the things that challenges us and moves us forward is we know it's coming, right? And so we keep coming together to encourage each other on to love and good works because we know the end of the story. We know eventually. So we have funerals. We grieve. We shed tears. But we also celebrate because we know what they're experiencing. We know it's coming. You know, no, no heart attacks or carotid artery problems. No new joints do we have to have. No coronavirus, you know, no, no flu symptoms, no cancer, no, no diabetes, no, no bypass surgeries, no darkness, no sin, no temptation, no more death. That's coming. Jesus left a perfect atmosphere, a pure atmosphere to come into a polluted atmosphere. He left a germ-free world. To come to a bacterial one. He came from a holy, left a holy community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to live among sin-sick people. He left a world of, of perfect satisfaction to experience hunger and thirst and weariness of body and soul and spirit pain. He left the infinite to become finite he left timelessness to experience time. And we whine about one hour change. He left painlessness to experience pain to the nth degree. In all of this, he was tempted in every way that we've been tempted. And yet is without sin. And then Jesus chose to live as a servant. He took upon himself the very nature of a servant, the text says. He didn't come as a, as a physically conquering king. He didn't come as a political leader. He didn't come as a Caesar. He came as a humble carpenter, a helpless baby, then a carpenter son. And his most common identity for himself was son of man, which was both a claim to deity as well as a connection with humanity. Because in the Old Testament, Son of Man was used as the servant God would send into the world, the Messiah that would come as the rescuer. So when Jesus used that title, he was claiming deity, but it was also his connection with humanity, Son of Man, the physical, all wrapped up in one title. And Jesus ultimately died then, the death of a criminal. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. To die is one thing. To die on a cross is quite another Job of old called death the king of terrors. And the king of terrors 2,000 years ago was confronted by the king of kings. And it appeared that day that the king of kings lost 
This was light on that day confronting the darkness. It was perfection confronting condemnation. It was, it was love confronting hate and truth confronting falsehood and wisdom confronting folly and mercy confronting judgment. He died as a criminal. No narcotics, no IV drip, no well-trained hospice nurses. He died alone even Without the consolation of his father, darkness came across the earth. Died in shame, died in agony. Why? I'm so thankful. Luke used this word last week, propitiation. It's not a word that we use very often, but I want to remind you of it. And whenever you see in your Bible, NIV, atoning sacrifice, I would circle it and put the word in there, propitiation. It's a better translation. Atoning sacrifice has to do with a substitute. But it doesn't tell the whole story. Propitiation it goes back again, as Luke expressed last week, it's the diverting of the wrath of God off of us onto someone else. It's a fuller, richer word. We don't have it there, I think, because it's not used in our culture anywhere. We understand atonement more than we do. I mean, there was a movie called The Atonement, but, 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 but you don't find a movie called Propitiation. Maybe there will be, but boy, it's our word. It's a story of our life. It's part of our biography. The wrath is off of us so that we can be children of God. Now, what's the so what? Let me give you two or three implications out of this cross of love. First of all, since Jesus is God, we can live buoyantly. Buoyantly. You don't have to sink. You're sinkless. There's no reason for any of us to live pessimistically. There's no, you know, there's no one that needs to live by a downstream philosophy of life. There's no reason for us to live with a dark shadow over us. When Paul wrote the Roman believers in Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? After all he'd been through, in the midst of all he was going through, can life or death, angels, principalities, demons, things present, things to come, height, depth, can anything in all creation separate us from the love of God? Absolutely not. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Does that is that the indicator of your life before a watching world? You don't cave to anything. That doesn't mean you don't experience pain. It doesn't mean you don't have tears. It doesn't mean you don't have loss. It doesn't mean you don't have bad days. It doesn't mean you don't have problems in your life. It just means through it all, you're unsinkable. You're buoyant. God is able to lift you above. You let him do that. Since Jesus is God, we care about both the spiritual and the physical because when Jesus came, his first priority was to seek and save the lost. His mission was, was to love all people to himself. That's why he came, which is a restated purpose of Jesus. But in coming, the, the lame walked, and the blind could see, and those who couldn't speak could suddenly speak. Those who couldn't hear could hear. He raised some of the dead people to life again. And so our ministry has to be holistic as well. Now, the main purpose will always be loving people in new life in Christ. But as we do that, we're going to notice very felt needs that they have. And we're going to get, we're going to get involved with people and help them in their, in their physical challenges. That's part of being followers of Jesus. We're holistic in our ministry. And third, Jesus. Since Jesus is God, we have someone who understands. Anybody got a problem today? I don't know how many people are in here, maybe 500. There are probably 500 problems at least. And most of you probably have multiple ones, you know. We can tell by looking at you. <laughs> no, teasing, kind of. Uh, 
No, I mean, really, really. He gets it. You've been betrayed, so has Jesus. You've been lonely, so has Jesus. You shed tears today, so has Jesus. Have you been, have you had an unanswered prayer? So is Jesus. Father, if there's any way for this cup of salvation to pass from me, please do it. Nope, didn't go Jesus' way. He submitted. Been falsely charged ever in your life? So has Jesus. Been abused? So has Jesus. Been misquoted? So has Jesus. Been mocked? So has Jesus. Been in poverty? So has Jesus. Been misunderstood? So has Jesus. That's why he's called a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. What a Savior. And through all of this, he increasingly becomes our wonderful counselor. No wonder. He's walked in our shoes. He's lived our life. And because of what he did, God had gave him the name above every name. And then one time is coming when the clouds are open, he will descend, and every eye will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And those who confessed him in life and by their life and by their lips will go on to their eternal reward. Those who didn't will have to confess that he is Lord indeed and go to eternal condemnation. That's the story. That's the end of the story. What a savior. This is a map of Kyrgyzstan. It's found in the eastern part of former USSR, now its own independent country, right by China. And the northern part of that country is a mountain range called Altoon Mountains. And then uh, in that range, in that mountain range, are the, uh, a group called the Celestial Mountains. Those Celestial Mountains oversee the capital, Bishkek. And even closer to that city, there's a mount called Atabyet. And on Atabyet, that location... There are monuments, and usually when you build monuments, they are erected to note some great victory or triumph for great leader. But there are three monuments on Antibet that mark three defeats in that area, in that country. One was in 1916, when 100,000 men were conscripted to serve in World War I, and 100,000 lost their lives, either by the war itself or by the brutal winter. The second defeat, monument to defeat, was 1938 when Joseph Stalin uh, had some rebels against him and his, and his uh, leadership and brutality, and he ordered the execution of 137 of the high citizens of Bishkek. He took out and murdered teachers, lawyers, doctors, and other leading citizens of Bishkek. The third monument is for what happened in 2010 when 84 young people were murdered because they rose up against the tyrancy of their leader at the time. A mount of tears, Atabyet, outside another great city we're well acquainted with is another mount and it's a mount of tears for us as well. We are moved at this mount that is a, a mount of extreme injustice, but a mount of extreme magnificence as well. Because there the Son of God 
suffered for us. That Mount Atabiet, the Mount of Tears, um, eventually called the Kyrgyzstan people to be a, a thriving people. And the people of God had this precious mount, Mount Calvary. And because of this mount, we can thrive as well because of our risen Savior. Do you know him today? Do you bask in the shadow of the cross? May we never, ever, ever forget what happened for us on that day. Let's pray. We pause in this hour of worship, O Father, to contemplate this truth of God that far exceeds the limitations of our human minds. The ugliness of the cross indeed repels us, and nevertheless we are drawn by this cross of love. It's the centrality of cross of Jesus that holds us. The power of the resurrection of Jesus three days later that compels us and energizes us. It's the welcoming of your spirit and your lives when we're born again that changes us. So how can we not find these emblems dear to us we understand, Father, that they are not holy emblems. They are not unusual emblems in and of themselves. They are just a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice. But the one they represent, Father, absolutely overwhelms us. And so now, Father, we take these emblems into our bodies to perhaps taste a bit of the sacrifice of Jesus, to feed upon his sacrifice, to remember and to say thank you for this cross of love. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.